This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Former U.S. Secret Service man Gary Byrne is standing by to talk about what he witnessed while posted at the White House during the Clinton years. It's all detailed in his book, Crisis of Character. We'll get to that conversation in mere moments. Uh, Ian Robertson, our technical producer, is back after touring with his rockabilly band in La Belle Provence, Quebec, and uh, up in cottage country, too, I understand. He's on the other side of the glass, as per usual, twisting dials and knobs and helping us create some radio magic. Uh, Albert Vinzel is here, my story producer, and he's running the HOA, or Hangout on Air. Uh, you can live stream this radio program on YouTube. And uh, it's really easy, and here's how. Just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, S as in Simon, Y-R-E-T-T. Go to the top or near the top of that feed, and you'll find a tweet containing uh, the HOA link. And you just click on it, and you're in. And you can watch us here in studio. Sometimes we have our guests on webcam as well, or sometimes you'll just see me. And um, we'll have a slideshow running as well. It's pretty cool technology, and it's, ha- it's helping uh, to expose uh, this program to a whole new audience. Uh, Sunday, September the 11th, Conspiracy Culture and I will be presenting Where Did the Towers Go? with Dr. Judy Wood. She was with us last week for a sneak preview. Where Did the Towers Go? with Dr. Judy Wood. That's from 1 to 4 p.m. at the J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. And tickets are available online at strangeplanet.ca. Strangeplanet.ca. Just go to the live events page. And you can also purchase tickets at Conspiracy Culture by phone, uh, in store, or you can go online. Just visit conspiracyculture.com. Where did the towers go? Evidence of directed free energy technology on 9-11. That's Sunday, September the 11th. JJR, JJR McLeod Auditorium here in Toronto. And we hope to see you there. Again, strangeplanet.ca, conspiracyculture.com. Gary Byrne's Crisis of Character uh, contains shocking new details about the Clinton administration. Working as a member of the White House Secret Service, Byrne witnessed a severe deficit of character. 
in the administration from Bill Clinton's many sordid affairs to Hillary Clinton's explosive temper at the smallest of infractions. And uh, that's where we're going for the next 45 minutes or so. Gary Burns served in federal law enforcement for nearly 30 years in the U.S. Air Force Security Police, the Uniformed Division of the Secret Service, and most recently as a federal air marshal. While serving as a Secret Service officer, Gary protected President Bill Clinton and the first family in the White House. Gary Byrne, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Uh, first of all, let, let's. Um, uh, critics have come after you and, and said, uh, listen, you were in the uniform division, not the presidential protection uh, division. Therefore, you wouldn't have had access to the Clintons. And you, I don't need to tell you all this. You've heard it uh, ad nauseum. Sure. But just first of all, clarify, what's the difference in terms of where you're posted in the two divisions, the uniform division, which you served in, and then the presidential protection division? So... The Secret Service is a pretty good-sized agency, and you have the, the agents who run the agents, and then you have different divisions. And, of course, like you said, I was in the Uniform Division. And the jobs of the Uniform Division are uh, fixed posts around the White House inside uh, the West Wing, East Wing, the mansion, and then fixed posts outside on the fence line, the protection um, for an overt attack. The Uniform Division also... Uh, Mans the emergency response teams that are there to uh, the uniform division emergency response teams to um, repel an attack, and then the uniform division also does the metal detectors around the country and around the world when the president travels. They do the bomb sniffing dogs. They do the canine, uh, excuse me, canine bomb sniffing dogs, and also the counter sniper teams. Um, the 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 way it works uh, when you get in the uniform division, you're, you're, everybody is uh, stationed in Washington D.C. And I was stationed in at the White House, um, right outside the Oval Office, with the Clintons for three years, and I protected them uh, the whole eight years that they were there. And the idea that these these people, uh, these they're actually retired Secret Service agents who are who are who are uh, slandering me, is um, basically it's their ego. They don't want to admit. You know, first of all, these guys, these two guys that are so prominent, they weren't even working there when I was there. But. Um, the, the, the thing you have to remember is, unfortunately, my claim to fame is, is I was the first employee of the Secret Service to ever be compelled to testify against a sitting president in a criminal case. That was the Monica Lewinsky uh, uh, situation. Yeah, that's right. So the idea that I didn't witness these things is ridiculous because I was subpoenaed six times. And then eventually um, the chief of the U.S. Supreme Court ordered me to testify or go to jail. So um, these people are just... Uh, clearly supporters of the Clintons, um, and um, everything in my book is true, and, and, uh, and I'd be honest with you, I swear to it. Now, you also, uh, you, did you serve in the, the Bush, uh, Papa Bush, President Bush 41? Did you serve in, at that White House as well? I did. I actually, I, I like to say that I, I came in with Papa Bush, and I left with Son Bush. I came in in two, uh, 1991, and I left, I transferred to the Air Marshals in 2003 when George W. Bush was president. Now, when uh, is there an unwritten rule, for example, that that the Secret Service, you know, they're not supposed to write about what goes on, you know, what what goes on in the White House stays at the White House. I mean, did you is yeah. is there an unwritten rule here that you've broken? No, that's true. Um, that's true. And, and here's the way. Here's the way. You know, the truth is, I never ever thought I would talk about these things. I thought I would take them to the grave. And um, about two years ago. Um, a friend of mine approached me, and over the years, many people have approached me, professional writers, 
news agencies. And I've always said no, you know, that I wasn't interested. And things changed about two years ago. And basically, my mission now um, is to let the American people know who the real Hillary Clinton is. Look, if they still want to vote for her, fine, that's our system. But I want them to know the truth is, I see this fictitious Hillary Clinton that they're that they're putting forward on the on the news, and this is not the real Hillary Clinton. The real Hillary Clinton is the woman that I described in my book, who is dangerous, uh, violent, um, who is um, uh, gets wrapped around the axle, has this terrible temper, and walks around and treats everybody like she's a dictator, and everybody else is some kind of worthless subject. And uh, and that's the real Hillary Clinton. So you don't have a political axe to grind, are you? Are Secret Service agents even allowed to vote? Yeah, sure. We, Secret Service employees vote like everybody else. You know, we're encouraged to keep our political views to ourselves. And I did for many years. You know, have no doubt in your mind, if I was still in the Secret Service Uniform Division and she got elected president, I would protect her to 100% of my ability, no matter what. Um, but, you know, like I said, after 29 years of serving in the government and, and watching and seeing what I saw, I thought it was time for me to tell my side of the story. Because just like now, now of course, of course now I brought this on myself. But let's think about how I got here. I got here because her president, her husband, who was president at the time, got caught in one of the many affairs that he had and wasn't man enough to come forward and tell the truth and, in, this, in this investigation. And that's how myself and these other Secret Service employees got drugged into it. So, um, you know, the ideal that you're never supposed to talk is not necessarily, I mean, it sounds great and it sounds good in a movie, but, you know, there's been many Secret Service employees that have written books over the years. And uh, the reason mine has struck a nerve is because they can't really dispute it. And they know the fact that I, was, that I testified under oath to a lot of these things, that my word is solid, and, and it scares them. Now, we, we've had uh, uh, Gary Byrne is with us, the author of Crisis of Character. He was uh, U.S. Secret Service posted uh, right outside the Oval Office during the, the Clinton years. And uh, this book... Uh, details some shocking revelations about uh, the behavior, the explosive temper, for example, and we'll get into all of this, of, of, of Hillary Clinton. Uh, we've, we've heard disturbing things about uh, the occupants of the White House. Uh, Richard Nixon, um, at, at one time it was, you know, it, it was revealed that um, he would be in sort of a drug-induced haze and, and uh, he'd be sitting in the White House in the Oval Office uh, completely nude. Uh, we, we, we were familiar with Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, incredible temper, uh, once described by members of his own staff, it went behind his back and had him diagnosed by, as a, by a psychiatrist as a complete sociopath. Um, we've heard these things before. So what's what's so unusual about... Uh, a first lady having, for an example, an explosive temper or being verbally abusive to security officers. I mean, is this is this so unusual? Yeah, well, it's not. Here's the thing. It may, you know, I don't know if uh, I never heard the story about President Nixon sitting around uh, uh, naked, which kind of strikes me as funny. But here's the thing. Regardless of who did it, you know, if Nixon was a tyrant, if, if if, if um, uh, Lyndon Baines Johnson was a tyrant, here's the thing. You wouldn't tolerate that from anybody that you work for. You know, a lot of people judge the people around them by the way they treat. You know, if you go into a restaurant with somebody, let's say a new client or a new boss, and they treat the waiter or waitress like crap, that says something about them. Absolutely it does. Yes, you're right. And, 
And when it comes to somebody like Mrs. Clinton, now you have to remember, she was the first lady. And she, her main job was to be a, the social, run the social office. That's traditionally what first ladies did. But President Clinton gave her all this responsibility with, with no, really no authority. And, and, you know, when she first, when he first got in office in the early 90s, and have no doubt in your mind, when the American people voted Bill Clinton in office, they got Bill and Hillary. Yeah, they, they, they touted it. It's a two-for-one deal. She was right. touted as and the co-president. and it's going to be the same thing over again. Yes. yes. And, and here's my, here's one of my questions when people, you know, they get so excited about, it. you know, liberals who in this country who support her get so excited about it. My first question is, if she wins and he and he's back in the White House, what steps is she going to take to protect the women that are going to be working in the White House? Because we know what he did before. Now he's going to have, you know, really no responsibility but to run around and chase women. You know, I just find it bizarre that people think this is a great idea. Well, we will we'll get into the um, you know the verbal and and physically abusive sure. behavior. But I, I once you because you mentioned the women, uh, and Bill Clinton was a sexual is a sexual predator, uh, and uh, I mean I'm convinced that that the Juanita Broderick story is is true. Um, was there the the the, uh, the story goes that there was. Uh, something called the Bimbo Eruption Team that Clinton, uh, Hillary Clinton was in charge of. And any time one of these stories came forward about one of Bill's dalliances or he groped somebody, it was Hillary's job to harass that person. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment because uh, the, uh, the break is coming up here. We'll, uh, sure. we'll talk about that. We'll also get into, as I say, uh, the uh, physical and verbal abusive or abuse to security officers of Hillary Rodham Clinton and much more. Gary Byrne, Crisis of Clinton. Stay with us. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Gary Byrne is with us, and he was with the Secret Service, posted directly outside President Bill Clinton's Oval Office. And in his new book, Crisis of Character, a White House Secret Service officer discloses his firsthand experience with Hillary, Bill, and how they operate. Uh, number one New York Times bestseller. It's, you know, it's, it's amazing. We have, uh, we have Gary's book, number one New York Times bestseller. We have Denise D'Souza's documentary, Hillary's America, which within weeks became one of the top-selling uh, political documentaries of all time. Uh, and yet, you know, they are not being openly discussed on, on CNN and ABC and CBS and so forth. Uh, are you surprised uh, at the reaction of the, uh, the MSM, the mainstream media, Gary, to your book or lack of no. reaction? No, actually, I'm not. Um, I'm not surprised at all. But um, I'm disappointed. I, I at least, you know, it's funny, and I'm sure you, you, you know this, following these things as closely as you do. You know, they, they spare, they, they have plenty of time for people to come on and defame myself and Dinesh D'Souza and anybody else that speaks up against the Clintons and tells the truth. They have plenty of time to defame us and rip us apart on their TV stations, but they don't have the 10 minutes it would take to have me on there uh, in, in a, an adult discussion and explain my story, that this isn't about politics. This is about 
a, a police officer who wants the truth out there. Somebody who's now retired, who got where he was by taking a polygraph test, a lie detector test, and wants people to know who the real Hillary Clinton is. And uh, but they don't want that. They just want their message, which is, you know, everything is uh, is lolly uh, lollipops and uh, gumdrops, and it's not true. All right. Uh, I, before the break, I asked you about the the bimbo eruption team, and uh, I think James Carville actually admitted to this. And yeah. and Hillary Clinton, her job was, uh, you know, when these women, uh, these victims, uh, came forward uh, to complain. Of course, in, in some cases, it was just settled out of court. In other cases, these women were destroyed, and it was Hillary's job. They, she would sick the IRS on them. She would have them harassed by private uh, in, uh, detectives. Um, did you catch wind of that? Was this well known in the White House at the time by your detail? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, it's funny. One of the, A lot of people never really made this connection. One of the first things, that goofy things that they did when they got into the White House was they fired the White House barber. Now, you're probably thinking, what the heck is Gary talking about? The White House had its own barber up until the Clintons got there. The guy had worked there for many years, and the White House barbershop existed for probably 100 years. And it was on the ground floor of the White House, pretty close to the to the doors that, that go out, or even the doors to the national to the um, Situation Room. Anyway, they got in there, and they said, well, we don't need a barbershop because Bill Clinton gets his hair cut for $200, uh, you know, a pop on, an air, on the airplane. So they... Um, they removed the barbershop, and that's the room, the space they used for these people uh, who, who were in charge of the bimbo eruptions or scandal eruptions at the White House. That's where they worked down in that space. And, yes, I, we did hear about it, and you did. You know, I know who the people are. One of them is actually running Hillary's campaign today. And um, it, it's just, yeah, I mean, there was no, it was no secret. And one of the other stories, uh, you mentioned the, the one woman that, that you said you believed. Juanita Broderick, one, yeah. Yes, and I believe her, too. I, listen, if you took her same story and she went to any police station in Canada, in the United States, anywhere, and she showed them a picture of a man and told them that story, they would go and investigate. But because it's Bill Clinton, he gets a pass. And because his wife is part of this bizarre behavior of theirs, I mean, when you sit back and you look at it now, I mean, this is really some bizarre, you know, behavior. This is so antisocial and so uh, crazy criminal. And then if you look at the story of um, um, uh, Wiley, um, uh, her last name is Oh, Ka- uh, Kathleen Willie. Kathleen Willie. Willie, I'm sorry. Yes. Kathleen Willie. Same thing with her. You listen to her story. And I, now here's the thing about her story, why it strikes me so hard. It's because... She's describing the spaces that I worked in. When she describes what happened to her, she's describing the space between the Oval Office and the dining room. You don't. Nobody sees that unless he takes you back there. The, the only other people that you know were the first family that saw those spaces, or some of the senior staff, or of course the Secret Service. Her story rings as true as anybody else's. And, and this, again, she alleges that that President Clinton basically pushed her up against the wall and groped yeah. her. Yeah. Meanwhile, at that exact moment, her husband uh, allegedly shot himself uh, in the head uh, and um, was found later. Yeah. She went there to ask him for help. She had helped in his campaign. She was a volunteer. And she was so well-liked and known that she was able to pick up the phone and get an appointment to see the president. And then he treats her like that. I'm sorry. That's unacceptable behavior. And Mrs. Clinton clearly supports it. But nobody wants to you know. A lot of people don't want to see that. 
And yet, she uh, and, and, and why a lot of these women are coming forward now, I mentioned the Juanita Brodericks and the Kathleen Willies, while it, why they would prefer just to forget about it, now they're coming forward because Hillary Clinton actually had the temerity to go uh, on the campaign trail and say all victims of, of rape should be, must be believed. And yet right. she had a hand, according to these, these women, in destroying their lives to keep them quiet. Yes, you're exactly right. And you know, there's something else I'd like your listeners to know about. Is, you know, the, the, the real Hillary Clinton that I described in my book. Now, if you go back to the early 1970s, we had President Richard Nixon. And he was invest, under investigation for the Watergate scandal. Now, Hillary Clinton was hired to be an investigative attorney during the Watergate scandal. The lead Democrat that hired her, he fired her shortly after, saying she was dishonest. Now, that's a significant thing, and everybody seems to ignore it. Now, if you fast forward to what has happened, you know, what she did as Secretary of State, the Benghazi incident, the incident with the email server, how is it that somebody is a U.S. senator for eight years and doesn't know how secured email is used? It's not believable. It's complete, a complete and utter lie, and she's not fit to lead this country. She's not fit to lead anything. Uh, tell me about... Uh, incidents where she was verbally and physically abusive to either you or mem- other members of, of uh, the security detail, the, the Secret sure. Service? So, so uh, the first one is, you know, when this stuff happened to me, it never bothered me because it's me and, and, and I handled it well. Uh, and I never really took her serious. I almost, you know, you almost wanted to laugh in her face when she'd yell at you. But one time I was posted outside the Oval Office around Christmas and she, and she came over, her staff member came over and wanted to do something with bringing these, uh, I think it was about 30, roughly, uh, volunteers from Arkansas into the Oval Office while the president wasn't there for a tour to make them feel special. And I said, you know, it was fine to bring them over, but once the tour was over, they had to leave the room. You couldn't leave them. So the staff member berated me. Later on, the first lady came back, came down and, you know, walked up to me and said, I hear we're having a problem again with, you know, you guys. The uniform division she was referring to, and then she, you know, and then she called us a bunch of a holes and said that they they should have fired us when they first got there. Now this is a woman who runs on these she wants these big government liberal programs with all these rules and regulations, but she doesn't want to follow them herself. And it's just another example of there's two standards: there's the Clintons that do whatever they want, and then everybody else in the United States has to follow these rules and regulations, and you know, be good citizens, and and they're not. Well, and, and perhaps even more to the point, she she has made a, 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 every opportunity. She's made the point about uh, her 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 political rival's temperament. Trump right. doesn't have the temperament to be president, right. and yet, as you detail in this book, chapter and verse, it's that's exactly the 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 problem with Hillary Clinton is she does not have the temperament. You 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 write about just simply saying good morning to her uh, could incite abuse. Absolutely. One of my coworkers is walking down the West Colonnade after being up all night protecting her and her family and uh, says, good morning, First Lady, and she tells him to go up himself. Now, all these stories that I detail in my book, I know they're true because they were investigated. The Secret Service investigates everything that happens when it's something between the protecting and one of the agents or officers. And it was, it was investigated just like a couple other incidents similar to that. And basically, the Secret Service says, we believe you, we know what happened, and we're sorry, but she hates us. And it became very clear that Mrs. Clinton, in my eight years, and I, I have no problem saying this, she despises law enforcement and she despises the military. 
and she shows that on many, many occasions. Is part of the uh, the problem here that she has some sort of a paranoid uh, outlook uh, with, with authority, and perhaps because you, some of your detail, and you personally were were had served the uh, the Bushes previously, yeah. was she paranoid? Did she think you were out to get her? Yeah, I don't I don't know if she really thought we were out to get her, but she certainly was paranoid about politics. And and for me, and and my my. My read on her after protecting her for eight years and what I've seen since then, everything in her life revolves about around politics. She doesn't really have, it's almost like she's dysfunctional in a way, and she just, everything is about politics. And yes, they did show signs of paranoia. Um, I talk about in my book when they first got into office. And this also shows that you how reckless they are with money and how they, they think there's they can do whatever they want without any rules or regulations. About three years before they got elected, the Bush administration had put in this really high-end, state-of-the-art telephone system from AT&T. When the Clintons got in there, they decide somebody gets it in their in their ear that, that, that they think that the phone system is tapped and it's feeding information to the um, Republican Party. So they replace the phone system. They, they have AT&T. You know, they tell them to replace it. It costs a fortune. I mean, if you can imagine how many thousands of phones there are in the White House complex. The White House complex is the old executive office building the Treasury Department, the new Executive Office Building, and the White House East and West Wings. Thousands of telephones. And they had the whole system replaced. And and I got this right from the AT&T technician that worked in the, in the White House, the station in the White House. He said once it was all installed, all the new computers and phones, and then they wanted to get paid for it, the Clinton said, what do you mean paid for it? They didn't have a budget for it. They, they just thought they could do whatever they wanted. So they had, you know, millions of dollars spent on replacing a phone system that didn't even replace, and they had no way to pay for it. Gary Byrne is with us, uh, the author of Crisis of Character, and he was with the Uniform Division of the uh, Secret Service and was posted right outside the Oval Office uh, during the Clinton White House years. Uh, speaking of phone lines, uh, Gary, you, you talk about in the book, this is <laughs> rather disturbing now, shifting the uh, the focus from Hillary uh, to Bill for a minute. Uh, there is a... Um, a, a special phone line that is, I mean, it's top secret, and it is, a, it's, it's supposed to connect only with senior military brass. And I'm thinking, you know, in the event of some sort of uh, military emergency, I don't right. know if this is the line where they call to engage nukes or not, but this is a senior yeah. military brass secret line, and, and you say Bill Clinton gave Monica Lewinsky, Lewinsky access to this top secret phone line. Yeah, so this phone line... Um, it, it, it's not really like um, it's not really like the bat phone, but what it is, it's a, it's a private line that sits on the behind the president's Oval Office desk on this credenza, and it's just an old uh, push button, you know, uh, digital phone. But um, and what it's for is if if the president wants uh, communications with somebody, anytime you make a um, a phone call at the White House or to the White House to see the president, it goes through the White House switchboard. This is a, a private line where you can dial the president directly. And like I said, like you described, very few people have it. Um, senior military people, chief of the CIA, director of the FBI, that kind of thing. And they would only call it if it was really important. Otherwise, they'd go through the switchboard. Well, during the, the, the time when President Clinton and Michael Lewinsky were having this affair, you know, in the beginning, I tried to cut them the benefit of the doubt. I didn't want to believe it was happening. I knew what his reputation was, but Jesus, she was like 
you know, a little only a little older than his daughter at the time. She was about 22. So anyway, um, one day she shows up at the Oval Office, and I had, re- you know, rebuffed her and, and basically repelled her away a couple times. But she shows up, and she says that um, she, it was a Saturday. There was no staff in. It was just the president at the time of the Oval Office. And um, she shows up with a stack of papers. It was basically newspaper clippings. And I told her, no, you couldn't bother him. Go away. So she disappeared. And the AD kind of looked at me like, you know, whatever. And so a couple minutes later, the Oval Office door opens up, and there's President Clinton. He says, hey, have you seen anybody looking for me, trying to deliver something? And I'm like, oh, here we go. And I'm like, yeah, um, okay, I'll keep an eye out. You know, I, I didn't come out and say, yeah, I just booted her out. But it was clear at that point, that was the day where I realized that, it, you know, it was probably true, and that's what he wanted. So, you know, anyway, so a couple minutes later, she came back, you know, all sheepishly, and I knocked on the door, um, waited three seconds, I opened the door, and I let her in. And, um, the, and it came out later in the investigation that the only way that she that he could have known that I repelled her was that she had to call him and say this guy said I couldn't come in. So um, so yeah, that's how she got in contact with him. She had called right. him on that on that private line. Yeah, you write that you saw her call him from the Roosevelt room. With uh, actually, she called my coworker saw her. She ah. told, yeah, she went into the Roosevelt room and she called from there. That that's correct. She called on this hyper secure phone line that requires a four digit password. Yeah, so that's right. You dial the number, and then there's a four-digit code that went with it. And you just couldn't dial. You had to dial it in almost a rhythmic tone, you know. And um, uh, so anyway, it was very bizarre. And, and that's when it kind of sent the message that, you know, this guy is who, really who he appears to be. Well, and, but think, let's think about that. He, he gave her the four-digit password uh, to this hyper-secure phone line that's reserved for military brass, he gave that to a 22-year-old intern. Yes. That's unthinkable. Yeah. That's... <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. I agree 100%. And and, and the funny thing is, 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 you know, a good portion of these people, the, the good portion of, of, of Americans want to put them back in office. And uh, when you try to tell them these, these things... You know, I mean, I've got good family members, people that I've known my entire life that, you know, were that are 15 years older than me and that helped me when I was a baby, and they won't read my book. I mean, these are people that, you know, they're, they're, they're liberals, that's fine, they're Democrats, but these are people I've known my entire life, and they don't want to read my book because they don't want to believe it. And they know if they read it, it'll be true, and, and it's just so bizarre when you... It's like it's like the Clintons have some kind of magic spell over people's. Well, they know, did, ability. but they did, but hopefully not too much longer. Uh, right. Gary, hold on. We'll take a timeout. We'll come back. We'll talk about cool. the time Hillary gave Bill a black eye. Gary Byrne, crisis of character, right here on the Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Loose lips sink ships, and sometimes corporations. Got something to say? Call Richard Serrett now at four one six. 360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740. 
or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Hey, welcome back. Just a, uh, a programming note uh, coming up next week. David Rothschild, uh, an economist with uh, Microsoft. No, not uh, David Rothschild of the banking dynasty uh, Rothschilds, but uh, interesting nonetheless. And he's uh, made quite a reputation uh, for his ability to predict uh, he's not a soothsayer, uh, he's not a psychic, but he employs certain uh, protocols and techniques, I guess, uh, using data uh, to predict the outcomes of uh, elections and even the Oscars, and he has quite a track record. So he'll give us a lowdown on the uh, the race for the White House. David Rothschild coming up next uh, week on the program, and then the week after that, the legendary Jim Mars uh, will be with us to help us commemorate uh, the 15th, hard to say, hard to believe, the 15th anniversary of the uh, 9-11 attacks. Right now, Gary Byrne stays with us, former Secret Service man who was posted outside the Oval Office during the Clinton White House years. And uh, his book, number one bestseller, New York Times bestseller, Crisis of Character. And uh, we, we began the show, I was asking uh, uh, Gary about, um, you know, accusations that uh, he didn't have access to the the, uh, the Clintons. He was in the uniform division and so forth, and he kind of set that straight. But let me just uh, read a, a, a little uh, squib here from uh, Breitbart. Author and former investigative reporter for the Washington Post and Boston Herald, Ron Kessler. Now, keep in mind, the Washington Post and Boston Herald, uh, both pretty liberal uh, newspapers, um, Kessler, again, who writes for both the Post and the Herald, is backing up assertions regarding Hillary Clinton former, uh, from former Secret Service agent Gary Burns' forthcoming book, Crisis of Character. Kessler told the Boston Herald, I think it's right on. It has to do with her character, the hypocrisy of someone who claims to help the country, and yet she can't bring herself to treat other human beings who are less powerful than, powerful than she with respect and dignity. Someone like that can really get out of control once they get in the White House. They have all the power and they become even more arrogant. And again, that's from Ron Kessler, an investigative reporter from uh, the Washington Post and Boston Herald, and essentially he is backing up uh, what Gary Byrne writes in Crisis of Character. All right, I uh, wanted to talk to you about the uh, the infamous incident uh, where you observed, a number of staff members observed, Bill Clinton uh, with a black eye. Uh, tell us what happened. Yeah, so um, one morning I came in to work and... Um, Instead of going right to my post, I had a little time, so I went over to the mansion to see a friend of mine. And um, on the way over to the mansion, I ran into a couple of the housemen that work in the White House. These are the people that take care of the, the first family, regardless of, you know, who's in office. And they said, you know, they said, hey, you missed a, a big fight last night. The Clintons had this huge argument. And, I, you know, just to put in perspective to your listeners, it's not like everybody stands around and listens to what these people are doing. But the White House is a really big, old stone and steel building and when they people start yelling in rooms you know the sound travels downstairs through the the hallways and the elevator shafts and stairwells so anyway the fight got so loud the argument upstairs in the private living quarters got so loud that um some of this you know they became alarmed and then at one point there was a crashing sound and later on when the crashing sound was investigated um they found a broken blue vase now when my when i went over to see my friend the next morning, he told me this. As soon as he was done talking to me, I walked a couple of doors down from where I was to the White House curator's office, and I looked inside, and sure enough, in the cardboard box was the broken blue vase, uh, mostly blue with a little bit of white in this small cardboard box. 
Now, the White House Curator's Office is the office that takes – these are the people that take care of all the artwork uh, and artifacts. In the yeah, essentially, the White House is a museum. I mean, they are it living is. in a museum. It's this incredible functioning museum. It's, it's wonderful. So I, I go to work over – I go to my post over outside the hall. And later on, when the president shows up, um, he's clearly got a black mark, a black eye under his uh, one eye, and he's trying to conceal it with makeup. So this concerned me, and, and you know, but you got to be careful how you trade. So I said to the couple of staff members, his assistant and his secretary, I said, oh, what's that mark on the president's eye? And his assistant, who had been working with him for years in, from, since Arkansas, had said, oh, he's allergic to coffee. And I said, he's allergic to coffee under one eye? And, um, <laughs> yeah, so anyway, I left it at that. But after that point, we actually became concerned that, you know, not only, you know, we were trained to protect the, the president from assassins and, and people with guns and bombs. and and um, But, you know, what do you do if he's attacked by the first lady? And that was some of our concerns. We talked about it openly amongst ourselves where, you know, if the, if Bill, if Hillary Clinton found Bill Clinton having one of these affairs, was she violent enough to actually attack him? Would we have to split them up? And uh, so, you know, it was, it was just another concern um, with, with their behavior. So you were, you were able to put, you and the other staff members were able to put two and two together, piece it together. And so she threw this vase and went, this vase, I don't know, how old was it? Did it go back to the Jefferson White House years? Who knows? Yeah, I don't, know, I don't, remember, I don't remember how old the vase was. But here's the fact. There was a really bad argument. There was a crashing sound, there was a broken vase, and then the next day, the next time I saw the president, he had a black mark clearly under his eye, and he was trying to conceal it with makeup. Now, I don't know how the vase got broken, but, you know, did she throw it at him? Did she knock it off during the fight? Who knows? I don't know how he got the black eye. I can tell you that the gardener didn't hit him. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it, it, but here's the thing. It fills in the blanks of all the bizarre behavior we heard about them when they were in Arkansas. When he was attorney general, when he became the governor of Arkansas, all the stories that they didn't deny and said was nothing but Arkansas politics were all true. She's a very violent person, and he acts in a way that continuously triggers this violence. All right, we'll uh, take another time out. Gary Byrne stays with us. Crisis of character. Shocking new details about the Clinton administration. Back with more in a moment. Stay with us. Peering into the shadows, where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Pin numbers. Passcodes, social insurance numbers. If they make you wonder how private they are, here's two more numbers. 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Gary Burns stays with us. Crisis of character. The U.S. Secret Service man posted outside the Oval Office during the Clinton White House years. Um, Hillary, of course, has um, championed the uh, the ban on assault weapons, and uh, depending on who you talk to, she's either looking at, at the very least, 
bringing about more gun control, more regulations, or the, the, the sort of the extreme end of uh, the spectrum, those who believe that she's actually looking at getting rid of the Second Amendment, which, of course, she couldn't do. But you can, you know, peck to death by sparrows. You can right. ban this and ban that and regulate this and regulate that. So essentially the Second Amendment wouldn't have any teeth. However, you say that uh, despite, you know, Hillary, on at least on the campaign trail, uh, talking about uh, banning assault weapons, you say she actually loves to shoot them. Well, yeah. Uh, this one particular uh, thing that I witnessed, uh, I was stationed out at the training center and um they were i was doing their second um uh president bill clinton's second term and they came out we, we called a dog and pony show the protectee comes out and we show them the procedures that we use to protect them and why we do it and not only why we do it but you know um how we do it um you know we do certain things for certain trips or for certain protectees that so one of the things that we do, we put on a demonstration for the weapons that we use. And, and actually, some, in this case, we were showing the weapons that the Secret Service used to use many, many years ago. One of them was the Thompson submachine gun. And at the time, I was actually not an instructor. I was on, at, the, at the training center on the security detail. But because I had worked outside the Oval Office, the protection detail asked if I would come out onto the range just to make them more comfortable because of, uh, you know, I was a familiar face because I'd been around the White House for so many years. And, um, so anyway, I, I was grateful for the invitation and I was there and, and, um, the first lady was, uh, they, they showed her the Thompson's Michelle submachine gun. They loaded it for her. They showed her how to fire it. And she's firing it with the, with the stock underneath her arm. And the first burst of, of fire, um, that, you know, when she pulled the trigger, she gets about five rounds. And the first burst of ammunition hits the target right in the crotch area. And it was just so, I mean, you couldn't, a, a, a Saturday Night Live skit couldn't have been this humorous. Right. I it's mean, like the Ed Ames tomahawk throw on The Tonight Show, for those yeah. old enough to remember it. Yeah. It was hilarious. And, it, it, you know, the verse went right through the crotch area of the target. And we all just kind of stared at it. And we looked at her. And then we looked back at President Clinton. And he had this really funny look on his face. And, uh, and it was just, you couldn't, I mean, the, the things going through everybody's head. You could just tell what it was. You couldn't have wrote it any funnier. And it was clear, you know, it had been about a year, maybe a year and a half after the Lewinsky uh, and things had settled down. But clearly uh, that was something that was on the president's mind that day when, you know, because everybody just thought it was hilarious. But she took great delight in, in firing off, the, you know, this Thompson yes. machine gun and so forth. Yes, she was not afraid of it at all. Absolutely not. No, she was not. And, I mean, she's being instructed by, you know, some of the best in the world. Uh, at what they do, but you know, she, no, she she jumped right into it, and it was one of those times, you know, and that's one of the reasons I put it in the book because you know I, I want to give a fair, you know, I want to give a fair picture of of who they really are, and you know, for somebody who touts firearms that are so evil and dangerous, she certainly seemed to enjoy them herself. You talk about the young staffers uh, that they brought in uh, to the White House, uh, radical young people that were defacing, literally defacing White House property, priceless antiques and artwork yeah. inside the White House. Tell me about that. Yeah, so it was about it was approximately the first week they were in office. I was standing outside my post outside the Oval Office, and um, and um, just just to give you your, your listeners an idea, like, you know, I didn't particularly care for the Clinton's politics, but I was very excited to watch the transition. And so I'm standing post one night and this, this 
guy walks up. He's kind of short and heavy set, and he had a, a temporary pass, which meant eventually once once they're done screening these people and doing their background checks, that he would have a regular hard temporary pass, and he'd be allowed access. So with him, he has a visitor that he's escorting, and this visitor is real tall and skinny. Anyway, this, the first guy, kind of short guy, walks up to me, and around his neck he has this beautiful um, necklace. It's it's a, it looks like a piece of, of leather with these big metal rings, you know, pretty good size, about the size of a quarter, maybe bigger, in different colors. And he walks up, and he puts his thumb underneath the necklace, and he pushes it right up like to my face, and he says, this is my gay freedom necklace. And I said, well, okay, good for you. You know, what do you say to that? And I guess he, I thought, you know, I felt like he was trying to provoke a reaction, like, because I was a police officer, that I was anti-gay or, you know, that I was, there was something, you know, wrong with what he was doing. And I just smiled and I said, well, you know, it's nice to meet you and, and good luck with that. And, um, you know, it was kind of awkward. And then he, he said, you know, he, they stood there and they were looking in the Oval Office and, and he said, I said to the guest, I said, you know, may I see your pass? And the guy, and I heard this a couple times in the beginning from staff members, oh, well, you'll have to understand we're in charge now. And I'm like, oh, okay, it doesn't really work that way, but whatever. You know, so he stood there for a couple of minutes and talking, and then they started walking down the hallway, and his friend with him started peeling these stickers off, and he was sticking them on the furniture. Well, you know, I'm very protective of the White House, and so I said, stop, and, and I went down there, and he was sticking these gay pride stickers on the very expensive wooden furniture, the walls, you know, the door jams, um, right. a, 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 the edge of a frame of a painting. And again, you ha- so, it has nothing to do with the content of the sticker. No. It, you, it was the fact that they were putting you, – you know, I, I know my, my kids. You know, they put stickers on the wall. You just painted the wall. It doesn't matter what the sticker is. The fact is right. there's glue on there. Right, exactly. And so – you know, you, you said it exactly right, and I don't care if there were free coupons for you know the Chinese buffet. Stop, you know. So, I, I I made a radio call. A sergeant and an officer showed up. They were escorted out. Um, we had to call had the General Services Administration and some some uh, ladies and gentlemen from the White House um, uh, executive residence desk come over and remove the stickers because if we were afraid if you just pulled them off that we would pull off the finish, you know, and, and ruin something. So anyway. That was one of the first examples we saw of their their kind of immature attitude. And, like, they got elected. Like, these people acted like they got elected, and so none of the rules apply to anybody but us. They were like kids and, in a candy store. They uh, were. They uh, were. That, true or false? The, we've heard this repeated oft times, but uh, did you catch wind of the fact that the Clintons were renting out the Lincoln bedroom? Yeah, so— yeah, I, I I saw the stories. You know, I, I can't remember if I knew it was kind of happening already or I saw the story in the paper. But the first time I saw the story in the paper, it didn't surprise me because I knew it was already happening. We See, here's the thing you have to remember. And, and you know, the Secret Service has a lot of issues with the way they manage their employees. Set that aside. I talk about it in my book. Um, but but the Secret Service is a pretty serious organization. And, and every morning in roll call, the uniform division, every morning we went through a reading of what was going on that day, and we knew everybody that was staying in the White House. So if 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 the head of Microsoft or Barbara Streisand or somebody was staying there, you knew about it at each roll call because, God forbid, something happened and there was some kind of 
you know, disaster. Of course. We need to know who else we're rescuing. You know, once we rescue the, uh, the protectees and get them protected, you know, we need to know who else we have to go after. So we, we knew these people were staying there. We knew, you know, we, we heard about it every day. You came in in day work, on day shift. They read, they told you who was staying in the mansion that, the night before. They told you who was scheduled to stay in the mansion that afternoon. So you knew everything that was going on. And yeah, I had no, I have no doubt that that was true. Absolutely, I saw it happen. So they would literally rent out if if they had a friend or an acquaintance that wanted to sleep in the Lincoln bedroom, they would charge them money that would go into their pocket, and they would have. You, who knows who you're going to find in the Lincoln bedroom on any given day? Right. So the way I understood it at the time was, it was for political donations. So let's say you're the the head of a steel company, and you know somewhere in the country, and you want to impress your wife or girlfriend, you donate a certain amount of money. And I don't remember what it was, but I remember it was at least $100,000. It was a significant amount of money. You would donate that to the Democratic Party or to their campaign, and then you'd be allowed to come and visit, and you'd get to see the president, and you know, and then uh, you would get to stay over. And uh, it was a very, very expensive uh, hotel. Pay for yet, play. Pay for play. Yeah, well, <laughs> she, they've, they've certainly honed that to a fine art with the Clinton Foundation, as we're, we're beginning incredible. to understand. Yeah, that's it. You're, you're exactly right. You know, it's, it's unbelievable, uh, the, you know, the disregard for the sanctity, really, of, of the office in the White House. The other story, of course, is when they were leaving office, you know, this is like your worst nightmare, like a really bad house guest who steals, who pockets silverware. Uh, but they were actually – they were caught taking items that belonged to the, the citizens of the United States. They were state gifts or they were uh, well, things like, you know, fine dinnerware. And, and is, did you witness any of that? Well, I didn't actually witness it, but here's, here's how I know it happened. Now, I mentioned earlier about the White House curator's office. Now, you can imagine the White House is very particular about keeping track of everything. Everything is written down. There's a logbook for it. If something gets damaged, for instance, one time a piece of furniture got damaged, and they take that piece of furniture and they repair it, and they write down in this book, you know, furniture damaged by this, it was repaired on this day, it was returned back to where it was supposed to be. So when this stuff started missing, it wasn't listened. The White House knows what's theirs, trust me. And, you know, what are the chances that the family that moved in from the Arkansas governor's mansion had something that was going to get mixed up? You know, they, they were trying to say, oh, no, it was just a mistake. We brought it from Arkansas. My, my you know, no way. And um, No, so the, were, the only thing the Clintons would eat off of in Arkansas, I'm guessing, would be from the Franklin Mint. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't know exactly what they ate off of, but I do know that the, there was some furniture missing. One of the things that were described to me by the, the people that managed the White House was a, a hassock, like something you put your feet on that was very old and, um, and antique, and, uh, and a couple other things. Um, now, I've, I've, heard, I've heard about the silverware and stuff. That I don't have any recollection of, but I do know there was stuff missing, and I do know they supposedly still have it today. Wow. Well, um, you know, it's uh, – first of all, congratulations on the book. And uh, it is disappointing that the uh, the MSM hasn't given it a fair hearing, but we shouldn't be surprised at this point. Where is the MSM? You know, the fourth estate now, uh, what, 4% approval rating? I mean, it's lower than Congress. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> well, yeah. perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. Anyway, it's been a delight uh, speaking with you, Gary, and uh, thank you for spending some time with us. 
Thank you. I greatly appreciate this opportunity. If it wasn't for radio stations, radio shows like yourself, nobody would know about my book. Thank you so much for giving me a chance to talk about Crisis of Character. My pleasure. Gary Byrne, Crisis of Character. It's available on Amazon. All right. My website, strangeplanet.ca, that's your portal to this program. There's a radio page, there's a TV page, there's a live events page. Go in, explore. In the meantime, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, and follow the truth. listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, RV, camper, your loft, your parents' basement, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM right here in Toronto, Canada the Liberty Village neighborhood. Hi to all of you listening in on one of our affiliates. And of course, last week we welcomed a new affiliate, WZUSFM in Champaign, Illinois, or WZUS for our American listeners. WZUSFM in Champaign, Illinois. That's not too far from Chicago, I believe. Welcome aboard, uh, those of you listening to the podcast, of course, and those of you who take this program with you on your mobile device with the Zoomer Radio and the Conspiracy Show apps both free downloads. Also, uh, let's not forget to uh, those of you who are joining us on the Hangout On Air. 
stream, streaming us live on YouTube. I'm going to wave into the webcam and say hello and uh, welcome aboard to all of you. However and wherever you're listening, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Uh, a few months back, how long has it been, Albert, uh, since we had uh, Richard S. Step on talking about uh, the world's most haunted hospitals? Uh, time goes so quickly, three, four months maybe, maybe longer. Uh, he, as I say, he was on the program uh, talking about uh, haunted hospitals. And tonight, he's got a new book out. Uh, Richard's not with us, though, but his, his co-author is. And let me hold that up. It's called The Haunting of Asylum 49. And uh, so we're going to focus on one particular uh, haunted medical facility. It's uh, just out Salt Lake City. And, you know, I I could kick myself because I was there in July and uh, I should have stopped by. It's called the Old Thule Valley Hospital, Asylum 49. Now, the facility no longer operates as a hospital, but it's now a popular Halloween destination. You know, where you can go with your your kids and you go to these so-called haunted houses. But, you know, because everyone loves a good scare at Halloween. But visitors to most haunted houses know the most frightening things are just actors in monster makeup and uh, spooky special effects. Uh, And deep down, you know, we all know that the uh, the ghostly inhabitants are fake. uh, Except at Asylum 49. And uh, we're going to speak with the owner of Asylum 49, and as I say, the co-author of The Haunting of Asylum 49, Cammie Anderson, is here, and she's standing by. We'll get to her in just a moment. Just a programming note, once again, the legendary Jim Mars coming up in a few weeks on the program to help us commemorate the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. David, Roth- David Rothschild will be with us next week. Uh, again, not the banking dynasty Rothschilds. David is an economist with Microsoft who has developed uh, quite a reputation as a predictor uh, prognosticate, prognosticator in uh, U.S. elections and so forth, and we'll get the lowdown on the race for the White House from him. Uh, that's next week. And uh, let's see, on the uh, the 18th of uh, September, our good friend, our Gary, no, that's the 25th, our Gary Patterson will be with us. Uh, take a walk on the dark side, rock and roll myths, legends, and curses. And uh, on the 18th of September, we have uh, Mark Music who is the co-author of Boxes, The Secret Life of Howard Hughes. Fascinating story. really changes history. Uh, So be sure to tune in. Those are some of our programs up and coming. And uh, just a reminder, speaking of 9-11, Conspiracy Culture and I will be presenting an exclusive live event Sunday, September the 11th. It's called Where Did the Towers Go? Evidence of Directed Free Energy Technology on 9-11, featuring Dr. Judy Wood. Uh, to order tickets, go to the live events page at strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca. Click on live events, and you can you can buy your tickets right there online. Uh, or Conspiracy Culture, my co-presenters, you can go uh, order them uh, online at conspiracyculture.com uh, by phone or in store. Just go to conspiracyculture.com for all the details. And again, strangeplanet.ca live events page. Where do the towers go? with Dr. Judy Wood, Sunday, September the 11th, J.J.R. McLeod Auditorium, right here in Toronto. All right, let's talk about 
chilling tales of aggressive spirits, phantom doctors, and the secret of room 666. It's all detailed in this brand new book called The Haunting of Asylum 49. And uh, the co-author and owner of Asylum 49 is Cammie Anderson, uh, who along with her husband Kim, her niece Dusty, and sister-in-law Sonia uh, operate uh, this um, Old Tool Valley Hospital, Asylum 49, and she's been investigating claims of paranormal activity in homes and businesses across Utah and the surrounding states for over a decade, all the while continuing to research into the mysteries of the spirits at the Old Tule Valley Hospital. She leads a busy life with Kim, raising their children, mentoring the children of uh, Tule, overseeing scholarship programs held at the Asylum 49 Community Center, and working with her patients at the dental practice where she works part-time. Cammie enjoys the guilty pleasures of horror movies, fantasy books, antique shopping, traveling with her family, and the occasional Comic-Con to satisfy her love of all things nerdy. Cammie Anderson, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. Uh, and we, we so enjoyed having your uh, your co-author, Richard Estep, a few months ago. Uh, but tonight we're going to focus just... Am I, am I pronouncing it correctly? Tule Valley? It's Tuwilla. Tuwilla. Everybody pronounced it Tule. That's what it's spelled. All right. <laughs> Tuwilla. Tuwilla. And, uh, and as I say, I was in Salt Lake City back in July, and um, I didn't have a time, but I should have, should have carved out some time and, and, and come to visit you. How did you come yeah, to well, own— next time, do it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. How did you come to own Asylum 49? I mean, it's a, it's a large building. It is. It's a large building. It's an old hospital. It was a community hospital um, in Tuwilla for many years. Um, it opened in 1953, and it closed down about 13 years ago, 13, 14 years ago. Um, my husband, Kim, as you, you um, told the listening audience earlier, he's also a partner with me, but he grew up volunteering at haunted houses as a teenager, and he told himself if he ever found his location where he could open up a haunted house, then he would do it, and he found it, and here we are. <laughs> Was it difficult to purchase the property? Originally, it was a lease um, on the other part of the hospital. So we have two parts of the hospital. One is the haunted house, and the other part is an active nursing home facility. And we started out with a lease. We donated a lot of proceeds to them on top of our lease. And then we purchased it about three years ago so that they could build a new facility. So they'll be moving out in about February, and we'll get the whole hospital. And I'm sure that, you know, its reputation preceded itself. You you must have known for a long time that the, you know, word got round that the hospital was haunted. Uh, but when did you, when, did, when, it, when was it cemented or confirmed for you personally? For me personally, um, God, there's so many things that happened that were questionable. And then one day, my friend and I, we were in the nursery area, and we were just talking, and and we were doing an investigation because we wanted to find out for ourselves what was going on there. And all of a sudden, we heard children running up and down the halls. And at the time, there were no children in the building. It was just adults, and it was late at night. The facility locks down completely once you shut the doors, and nobody can get in. So that was um, probably what did it for me. So it had long been closed by the time you sort of were there to investigate. Right. It had been closed um, 
a few years. I'm not sure of the exact years, but the nursing home had been open and operating prior to us coming and doing the haunted house. And the nursing home is still the there. The, the nursing home is still operating, is it not? It is. Okay. It is still operating. How do the residents there feel about being attached to this Asylum 49 that with all these spirits running around? Um, you know, there's not a whole lot of things that go on over there. We keep everything pretty separate. They keep to their stuff and we keep to ours. Um, we don't want to bother them and they don't want to bother us. But there has been a few times that we'll give tours. I know in the beginning a lot of uh, the residents at the nursing home wanted to come through. A lot of real feisty ladies coming through telling everybody not to scare them. It was cute. All right. <laughs> but, um, what, what? Yeah, we're kind of, we're grown, so we're not really a kid, super kid-friendly anymore. Okay, it's more for grown-ups. Right. Now, were there reports um, of para- paranormal reports while the hospital was still operating, or did all this begin once it closed down? It was, there were stories told in quiet circles, um, Especially, we hear about them now, especially after the word has gone out, and it's not so taboo to talk about spirits. But we've heard a lot of nurses um, and doctors and even physical therapists that would visit the hospital, even though they were practicing in a different town. They'd visit the hospital, say that they'd seen something, and pass that on, and it just has come back to us. Um, I think that the biggest thing that I remember is the nurses in labor and delivery area. They did a tour, a ghost tour one night with us, and instead of us giving them the tour, they pretty much gave us the tour and told us about some of the um, claims and experiences that they had in the building while at being alone at the nurse's station at night with nobody in the area. Um, it's a very small town, and it's growing, but at the time when it was an operating hospital, it was fairly fairly quiet. So there wasn't always somebody that was in labor and delivery area. So they would sit there quietly all night long, and in this one room, there's a, a room, it's a surgical suite for if somebody needs a C-section or if there was complications to a birth, that's where they would go. And the nurses would sit at their nurse's station, and they would hear screams coming out of that room, even though there was no patient in the room. And it got so disturbing to them that they brought in a TV. They just wheeled the TV, put it in front of the door, and turned it up and left it on all night long. And back in, when the hospital was up and running, TV shut down. It's not like it is now, where you have programming all night long. It would shut down, and it would have the beep or the white... Noise. Yeah, they'd sing the national anthem and then off, yeah, then white noise, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and they would let that run. They preferred hearing and listening to that than what was coming out of that room. Cami Anderson is with us. Uh, She is the co-author, along with Richard Estep, of The Haunting of Asylum 49, Chilling Tales of Aggressive Spirits, Phantom Doctors, and The Secret of Room 666. We'll We'll get into all that and more on the other side. Stay with us. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. 
providing the evidence and letting you draw your own conclusions. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. We are getting a behind-the-scenes tour of one of the world's most haunted hospitals. It's the old Tuella Valley a hospital otherwise known as Asylum 49, no longer operating as a medical facility. It's now a um, kind of a, a, a haunted house or a haunted Halloween destination uh, for adults, not children, and you'll, you'll realize why in, uh, in a few moments. And uh, the owner of Asylum 49 and co-author of The Haunting of Asylum 49, Cami Anderson, uh, is with us. Um, and I mentioned this is not for children. Uh, this is not, you know, your typical Halloween haunted house where there are actors running around in makeup and, special, and spooky special effects. These spirits are real. Now, first of all, give me a sense of what the hospital looks like. I mean, it's been closed for 13 years, but, I mean, is it in, do you just, is it in kind of disrepair or decay or do you sort of keep it up? Does it look pretty much like it would uh, when it was an operating hospital? majority of the hospital does look how it would how it did back then we've done really good at maintaining the property and um, doing maintenance and upkeep on it we do have some areas that we've kind of messed up for the haunted house sake so it looks a little more run down um, but it's it it has rooms off of the main halls it's just like any other hospital you know you have the emergency room area you have a main hall that connects the whole hospital. You have the Green Mile that connects the haunted house side to the nursing home side. And then you have um, the maternity hall with that has the nursery and the labor and delivery area and all those patient rooms off to the side. And was some of the equipment like x-ray machines or incubators or any diagnostic equipment, beds, that sort of thing left behind? Yes, and that was the odd thing to us is you could walk right into any of the rooms and it looks as if people just picked up and left. Um, They still have the beds in there. They were still, in fact, we still use those to this day um, in the rooms. And they left some equipment there from the x-ray room and also the ER rooms. So it looks very much like an old hospital still. Now, with the beds, you mentioned we, you still use those. Does that mean people can stay overnight? Yes, <laughs> people do stay overnight. Um, they'll do ghost tours. Um, generally, we do those from January to August because we do operate the haunted house and we build sets um, from August on. Um, and then we clean up and open for haunted house, or excuse me, ghost tours during the off season. Um, but people do sleep in those. And we like to return the hospital back to its original state where we got it, since we still have residents staying there. Right, right. And does it get used for for movie shoots? It does. It does at times. We've actually had um, the mini TV series The Stand by Stephen King filmed there. Um, we've had numerous um, music videos. We've had student projects. Um, we've also had a movie called The Fast. Indian with Anthony Hopkins filmed in it. Oh, that must um, be fairly lucrative for you. Right. It, well, it can be. We don't charge a whole ton for um, things like that, especially when it's a student. Right. But when no. the stand came and filmed and when the Fastest Indian came and filmed, we weren't the owners at the time. So. Ah, okay. <laughs> All right. We, so, didn't, we didn't participate in that deal. <laughs> now, the... Um, 
the uh, the ghost when people stay overnight uh are they i mean what percentage of people leave actually having had uh, an encounter with with the paranormal i would say a large percentage probably in the 80 percentile or really? above 80 yeah, percent. yeah it's really really active and over the years we've noticed that there are some spirits that like to communicate more than others um and it's I think we're very, we're very much in a unique position because we've been al- allowed to build friendships and relationships of sorts with the spirits in these areas. And so they've been more than willing to come out and talk. And it's almost as if they're researching on the other side and trying to communicate with us as well. Uh, and um, do, you, do, do people that that uh, pay to stay there, do they have to sign a waiver? Because, I mean, if they have a really frightening encounter, I mean, we'll, we'll talk about one of these dark entities, the Guardian. I mean, if they run up against the Guardian and they have a really scary encounter, I mean, someone, could they not injure themselves or be traumatized? Yes, I think that they could. Um, we do have disclaimers um, that we have to make sure everybody is aware of. Um, we have a very good staffing um, system and a lot of very good and skilled people who watch what's going on during the ghost tours and are, are very aware of their surroundings and of the spirits and their temperaments. Um, like I said, we've gotten to know them quite well. They're just like people for the most part, um, except you can't see them. All right, tell so me about... I mentioned the Guardian. This is kind of a yes. darker entity that... Uh, yes. Well, wh- where is the Guardian located in the hospital? He's over in the emergency room area, Um, and in the emergency room area, we have a black plastic maze that he likes to hunker down in. Um, It's very dark, and it's hard to see anything distinctly in that area, and it's a maze, so he can run through and hide. Oftentimes, you'll see something out of the corner of your eye. You'll watch the black plastic streamers move and you know that nobody's in there. And have you caught a glimpse of him other than just seeing the movement of these black plastic streamers? I have, and we actually have a photograph of him as well. One of, uh, you mentioned Dusty, she was giving a a ghost tour during um, one of our on-seasons, and she was telling about the area that they were in and, and telling some of her experiences. And some of the people in the group, they were just snapping pictures like you do when you're out investigating. And they lifted their camera up from in the back of the group and just snapped it, snapped a photo of everybody's head. And back behind everybody is this big, dark shadow. And at the time, they had a digital camera so they could view that and verify right then that there was nobody there that would have caused that big shadow. All right, tell me about the spirits of rooms one and two. Oh, the rooms one and two. There are a few spirits in there, and I'd like to say that they don't um, all stay in one area, but they stay fairly close to their area. We found out they're, they're pretty territorial and they're comfortable, just like you would be comfortable in a couch, one spot like a chair or on a couch in your Um, front room while you watch TV. They're very much the same as that, and they're comfortable in one area. But in room number one, we have a little boy named Thomas, and he has been 
known to mess up the the beds numerous times. <laughs> and he's, he's a little bit of a jokester. He'll mess them up, and you'll go back and make them again. He'll mess them up again, and he'll do it again. And he'll do that until you stop, <laughs> and then you just get a good laugh about it. Um, in room two, we have an older woman. Um, she's very, very quiet, but sweet at the same time. And she's a very, very interesting spirit to me. Um, we've seen her for many, many years, and we didn't know a whole lot about her. Um, you just see her sitting in the chair, because you know how in patient rooms they'll have a chair for visitors to come and right, sit in right. and talk with the patients. So this is a full-on apparition. You've seen her. This is a full-on apparition. Um, sometimes you would just see her out of the corner of your eye. Sometimes you can see her head on, but she'd vanish very quickly, so it'd almost be... Um, you'd almost catch details of her. And for the long time, we didn't know who she was and what she was all about until there was a gentleman that came, and he was, he's a psychic medium, and he was telling us about this, the woman in room two. And he told us a little bit about what she looked like, and he said her name started with the letter E. He couldn't get the full name. And he said that she liked to play cards. And also, he told us that she was one of those kind of people that she wanted to be recognized as being there, but she didn't want company for long. So she would get very tired of you um, visiting after just a few minutes. So when he told us that, we started trying to do more communications with her. We try to play card games with her, and we used the flashlight technique. And for those who don't know what that is, is you would take a flashlight loosen it just so it barely connects and you would ask the spirit okay if you want us to if the the answer is yes then turn the light on if it's no leave it off um and we use that to try and play a card game with her do you want to turn this card over do you want to keep this card or do you want to change it in just things like that and it was successful for a few moves and then she got bored of us and we'd leave and one day, actually, when I was writing this book with Richard, um, I was writing about this woman, and I got a message on Facebook about a young lady who was in town with her kids who lived in Colorado. However, she was born at the Tooele Valley Hospital, and she asked if she could come and do a tour. And I said, oh, yeah, I'd be happy to come and walk you through, give you a tour. So we set it up, and she came. It was actually Christmas Eve that she came, and we met. She came in, and naturally the conversation went to Ghost Adventures since they had come and done an investigation, and the show was one of their highest ratings um, at the time. So they really, really loved that, and then since it was familiar, they wanted to talk about that. So I thought, well, I'll just go ahead and give a give one of the ghost tours, just kind of keep it child-friendly, of course. Right, there right. There some young kids there. So I walked her through, and we got to room number two, and she stopped and she looked at it. And as I explained to her what we were told about the woman in there, her face just got white. And she said, oh, my gosh, I think that's my grandmother. Oh, dear. And I was, <laughs> I was like, Really? 
and she told me things about her. She just described her to me in ways that, you know, just kind of filled in the blanks for us as far as our research. And her game was gin. We figured out Uh that she loved to play gin. So (laughs) now we have a new game we can play with her. So obviously the the, the spirits that inhabit Asylum 49 are, I'm guessing, are people that actually passed. And this would include the the children. They passed over at the hospital. Is that fair to say? You know, I'm not 100% sure about that. I think that it would be, it could be fair since it's a hospital and it was um, an up-and-running hospital housing kids also. There was also a kids wing there. Um, but since it's a hospital and the laws are what they are, we can't really find everybody who passed away there. So unless we get a lead in which to um, go down, we don't really have any start on where to look. In other words, you don't have access to the hospital medical records. Right. 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 We don't have access to the hospital records, and it's, it's against the law to have, some, have them and to give them out people who aren't family members. Sure. But you must be contacted, like this little girl uh, who said that she thought that was her grandmother. I mean, you must have people coming to you all the time saying, well, my my grandmother or my aunt or my uncle, they passed here. They died here. Um, Is it possible, you know, that their spirit is here? Does that happen a lot? Um, It's happened. I wouldn't say it happens a lot. Um, There's been times when we've had some situations where it's still a very sensitive subject, and we've been able to com- communicate with one of the family members who had died in that hospital. And it's been it's been very hard at those times, especially when they're children. Um, we had one case where we were giving a tour, and was we were telling about what this boy had told us in in EVP and different means of communications. And there was a woman on the tour that got very, very upset. And we pulled her aside later and asked her why she was so upset. And she said, I think that the person you were talking to is my nephew. Oh, dear. And, yeah, she was very, very upset. And she was upset for a couple reasons. One, is he still here? Two, are we just lying? Did we hear about it from somebody? And nobody was supposed to speak about the details in the family because very few of them knew about it, and they were protecting another member of the family. It was an accidental shooting, so that was a very, very hard thing for the family to experience. And finally, we were able to calm her down and get her um, belief that we weren't making this up. Nobody had told us. Um, We calmed her down in the way of, we don't think he's really stuck here, because he didn't seem to be. Um, And she went home. But what was very hard was the next day we got an email from the little boy's mother. And we ended up having to do that all over again, but this time with his mother. So that was very, very hard. Um, She came in and she wanted to talk to him, and she was able to. She got information that nobody would ever know. She got a little bit of closure. Obviously, when you lose somebody, especially a child, it's going to hurt for a while. You're going to grieve. Unimaginable. Now, was yeah. the, was her son able to communicate via uh, EVP, or was it in real time using uh, like a black box or um, a fr- like a Frank's right. box type thing? Yeah, with um, with the little boy's aunt, we were able to use multiple different equipment. The spirit box was one of them. We had flashlight and EVPs of the little boy that night. When his mother came, it was just through flashlight response. But they were so 
solid with the lights turning on and off uh, just in response to the questions, and they were so accurate according to the mother and what she knew that she felt that she had been talking to him. And we haven't talked to him since. He hasn't said anything. So we think about that and think, oh, gosh, this could have been so bad. But in a way, I believe that we either helped to cross him over or got him closure so he could move on or um, give some closure to the family member and the person who was also involved with the accident. Let's hope so. All right, we'll come back and discuss further The Haunting of Asylum 49. Cammie Anderson stays with us. I hope you'll do the same. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. The Tuella Valley Hospital, now closed, also known as Asylum 49. This is just outside Salt Lake City, Utah, and it is billed as one of the most haunted hospitals in the world. And the owner uh, is Cammie Anderson. She's also the co-author, along with Richard Estep, of The Haunting of Asylum 49. Uh, Do you have a handle on how many spirits uh, actually occupy Asylum 49? I would say a good 15 are regularly communicating and active in there. But I know that we have quite a few more that don't say anything and some that come and just kind of pop in from time to time. We have the nursing home that has people dying frequently. We have the cemetery that sits right next to us. And we also have people that come in a lot and do ghost tours and come through the haunted house that brings their own spirits with them. (laughs) They piggyback in on on, uh, those individuals. Yes, they do. So we have, at times, we will find out new ghosts that are there, and they will talk to us for quite a while, and then they'll all of a sudden be gone, and then they'll come back. Um, So it really is probably only about 15 that are very active. Do you have names for all of them? Yes, we do. Um, Some of them we've been given names through EVP by their own voice. Others, we've been told by multiple people what their names are. Um, we have a lot of mediums that come through and people who are sensitive that get a feel for things. And we'll take note, and after hearing the same thing a few times, we'll put a little bit more confidence in in that information before we start talking about it. Right. And and for you, or uh, or for Richard, who's not here, but uh, can you relate maybe one of your the most the frightening experiences you've had in Asylum 49, or perhaps a member of your family? Yeah, um, I'll tell one of mine, and it w- it's not in the book, so this will be something that's just um, an exclusive, an exclusive. Exclusive. All right. This this did happen after we sent the book in, and everything was done and ready, and it was in at the publishers. Um, I was building a room at the haunted house. We were getting ready to open last season. And we have, I mentioned before, where the guardian is, the black plastic maze. And the way that we build those is we'll put up some, kind of some rafters and wrap 
plastic around it. The plastic comes on large rolls, so it'll be just basically sheets of plastic, and we'll just line them up, and you cut up the sides of them just to create the streamers that hang down. And I was back there in the area, it was in the ER area, kind of over by the respiratory clinic, and all of a sudden I felt somebody behind me. And I could feel him touching my back just through the sheet of plastic that I hadn't cut yet. And I just made myself aware of that what was going on. I thought, oh, well, there's somebody there. I know that it's none of the volunteers that are helping me today or any of the staff or any of the kids because nobody was back there. So I took note of it and just kept working, worked a little bit faster. It was dark back there. I could barely see. There was only enough coming through the door that I had propped open for me to see and cut the streamers. And all of a sudden, just kind of getting a little bit more aggressive with the touch on my back. And without any warning, all of a sudden they started, whoever it was, was pushing me side to side between the two pieces of plastic, kind of like that child's game, the London Bridge is falling down, how you go, your friends put their hands down to your sides and kind of toss you side to side. Right. And that was that was a little nerve-wracking. That was the first time that I had been touched in there in any way that was even kind of violent. So <laughs> I think that's probably my most frightening experience in the hospital. Uh, I'm trying to remember when Richard was on, Richard Estep, your co-author, because uh, we talked briefly about Asylum 49. Yeah. Uh, now, he had kind of an aggressive encounter as well, didn't he? He did. Um <laughs> this was a very interesting one. He came in with a bunch of people from Colorado. He brought some of his, the paranormal team with him and also some of the people that he works with. Um, as you know, he's a paramedic, and he, he does a lot in the healthcare. Yes, and a volunteer industry. fireman, yeah. Right, and a volunteer fireman. But he brought his boss and her daughter and a few other people with him to reenact a situation that may have occurred in the emergency room area. And their idea was to kind of stimulate a reaction from the doctor that is in that area. Oh, I, they, they were trying to intubate a, like a mannequin. Uh, yes. Right. Yes, they were. And they did two different things. They did one that was, if anything could go wrong, it did go wrong in the one. They were all pretty skilled at what they do in their jobs, so they knew exactly what to say to make it go wrong, and they did that. And after that, they decided to just regroup and, and clean up and set up again to do the other one, which was going to be um, run exactly how you would, and everything went right. And after that, he decided, well, I'm going to go up, and I've got to walk to the security office, which is down the main hall. And as he was walking, he walked through these doors that we have propped open. They're heavy doors, so we don't want them to fall on anybody or close on anybody during the haunted house, so we'll wedge them open. And as he walked through, all of a sudden the door slammed, and the wedge, he said, flew six feet over and slammed very, very hard right behind him. He said he could feel the breeze on it and everything, so <coughs> that made him a little bit nervous. So this is the uh, supposedly the spirit of a, an ER doctor, 
and yes. and Richard and his team were trying to elicit or evoke some sort of a response from the ER physician by, first of all, sort of botching the intubation procedure on this mannequin right. to upset the ER doctor. Like, that's not the way you do it. Is that the idea? Right. Right. He's very much, um, the doctor in that area is very much do it my way or else. He doesn't suffer fools very easy at all. And he will tell you a no on certain terms if you've upset him. And has he so identified? They, they did that. <laughs> sure. Has he identified himself in terms of, through an EVP or other means? He has not, um, but I have seen him on one occasion full body, and, and he was—he's he, not. I wasn't the only one to see him. We've had cast members who have been in that room, in the ER room, during the haunted house in a role, and one in particular um, told me a story about when she was in there. Laying on the bed, she was kind of a patient that was um, being tortured by one of the doctors during the haunted house season. And she was a little bit tired, so she started falling asleep. And on several occasions that season, she would open her eyes and see a doctor standing above her as if he was observing a patient on the bed. All right, we'll uh, come back. One more go-round with Cami Anderson, the owner of Asylum 49 and the co-author of the haunting of Asylum 49, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. In a democracy, we elect officials so we can sleep at night. So why are you up? 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah from Zoomer Radio. All right. Well, it's not Halloween yet, but uh, if you're in the Salt Lake uh, City area, I'm not sure if we have any affiliates in Utah. I'll have to, do you know Albert offhand? We'd have to check the list. But um, anyway, if you're in the... In that uh, general vicinity, uh, you want to check out Asylum 49. It's uh, the old uh, Tuella Valley Hospital, and it's now run as kind of an event, uh, a live event location, uh, haunted tours and so forth. And it is um, billed as one of the most haunted hospitals in the world. Uh, Cammie Anderson is with us, and she is uh, the owner and uh, the uh, the co-author of The Haunting of Asylum 49. Now, this is uh, interesting uh, for a hospital. Hard to think, but they when it was built, they didn't build a morgue uh, in the hospital. So they had they set up sort of, sort of a, a temporary morgue, and um, I think it was room t- rooms 20 and 21. Uh, tell me about that, because uh, you, you're getting some activity there, too, I can imagine. Yes, we do. We get quite a bit of activity in those two rooms. Um, And the way that that was set up as a temporary morgue is that it's a very small town. So if there was anybody that needed to be um, removed from a room, if there wasn't enough rooms, they would pull them aside and put them in that room as they passed and allow families to say goodbye or give an easy easy way to get for the mortuary to get in and and remove them it's kind of off the beaten path there's not there's only those two hospital rooms on that hall all the other ones are 
um, administration and offices. So it would allow them easy access so nobody else would have to see them removing a person who had passed. Um, a lot of people who are sensitive um, or psychic have had a lot of hard times in those rooms. They'll go in there and just the, the death would overwhelm them. And people are they're paying for that to have that in, that sensation. <laughs> right, unbelievable. It's, very, it's, it's a curiosity. There's a lot of things that people want to know in life. A lot of questions people have, and one of those is life after death. Is it real, or is it over when you die? Um, some of them it's for their own knowledge. Some of them it's because they have people they love that have passed and. They want to know what goes on and if they can find out the secrets of the afterlife. Now, tell me about your, your EVPs. You must have quite a collection, and, and I, I understand that EVPs are sort of graded. Like, you know, there's your, your grade A, your grade B, your grade C. Uh, right. And, I mean, how many gr- really good quality grade A EVPs do you have? Do you, do you keep the collection? I have a very extensive collection. I don't have an exact number, but it's it's very lengthy. <laughs> and a lot of them are Class A um, and some Class B. We very rarely get any EVPs that you can't make out. And uh, can you share with me maybe maybe some of the more interesting, disturbing, frightening, funny uh, EVPs that you've collected? Yes. Um, <laughs> I'll give you one in each category. One of the most unique ones that I've ever heard, um, and I've not only done investigations at the hospital, I've done all around, but one of the ones that we got at the hospital was that of an individual who was in the x-ray room. Asked him to say who he was, tell us his name, and he gave us a first and a last name, of which we were able to find him in history and even have taught with his family members. He, his name is Peter Hansford, and he was a radiology tech, and he loved his job very much, according to his family members. And he, they feel that he comes back and visits because he did love it so much and has some very fond memories there. That's fascinating when you get, because you don't, I, I always ask this question, you know, did you get a first and last name? Because I'm always looking, you know, for some corroboration or, or something that you can... You know, some evidence. Now, did you play that EVP for them? And, and if so, did they, did they agree that that was his voice? Yes, they did. Um, in fact, they think it's really cool that he's still around a little bit. And he's not there all the time. He comes and goes. We've asked him. In fact, we got EVPs from him um, on another date, just asking other questions. Asked if he's stuck there. He said no. He comes and goes. And this was all an EVP. And we asked him, are you with anybody? He says he's with his mom and dad. So that one is not a terrible story. Um, There's a lot of sad stories that happen in a hospital, but that one was one of the better ones. And it also had a lot of implications of there is life after death, and you're not alone. You do see your family and friends when you pass. So they were able to identify that the voice on that EVP, and for those not familiar with EVP, electronic voice phenomena, this is where you capture the voice of a spirit, supposedly, on some sort of a recording device. And sometimes you, you, don't, you don't actually hear it with the naked ear. It's only when you play it back. Right. 
uh, and they were able to identify this former radiologist, his voice, and say, yes, that's Peter. Yes. That's yes, remarkable. They were. That's remarkable. You had some other examples, uh, some yes. maybe frightening. My, the most frightening one for me is we were in room 20. and The temporary morgue. Right, the temporary morgue. And we caught an EVP of a very, very gurgly male voice that said, don't zip up my head. And when I heard that, I mean, just the sound of his voice is chilling, and I imagined them tr- taking his body away in a bag and him saying, don't zip up my head. I, that was, it was a very scary oh, one, hi. just the voice was terrifying. And then a funny one. Oh, my goodness, I'll give you a funny one. Me and my partner in crime, Kathy Blank, she's been my partner in investigating for years since day one. And um, we were in labor and delivery, and we were just talking. It was late. We'd been investigating for a long time. So we were getting a little bit silly. And <clears throat> all of a sudden, after when we reviewed the recorders, we heard somebody say, they're weirdos. And then a separate spirit said, yeah, they are. <laughs> so <laughs> hmm. that one was funny for us. We're going to have to have you uh, come back on, and, and um, maybe we can play some of these EVPs on the air. Would you be good for that? I would love that. Yeah, let's do that. Uh, maybe closer to Halloween. Um, Perfect. Now, two of the uh, my favorite chapters, I, I use the word favorite, favorite sort of with some hesitation because uh, uh, I've, like a lot of people, I find uh, dolls kind of creepy, uh, <laughs> especially clown dolls. Mm-hmm. And uh, you have something at Asylum 49 called the, the Cage of Fear or the Fear Cage, the Fear Cage. Right. And it's just filled uh, to the rafters with dolls of all sorts of different sizes. Tell me about that. Yes. Um, in one of the areas, this is set up for the haunted house attraction. Um, a lot of people, one of their fears are dolls. Um, for, that's probably where the movie Chucky came from, is <laughs> people's fear of dolls. Well, and they're, um, they're one of the most commonly haunted uh, objects, apparently. Right, right. There's people who have collections of haunted dolls, and for whatever reason, they spirits do like to possess them or attach to them probably for comfort or just because they you know in movies and things like that it could seem that they're innocent when they're not but that's that's how um we decided to put in a doll room and it is there are dolls from all walks of earth you know the earth there's from this continent and that continent. There's some antique dolls in there. There's large dolls, small dolls, life-size dolls. You name it, they're up the stairs and on beds and on blocks in the middle of the room. And so it's almost um, like an episode out of Fear Factor. People will, who are afraid of them, will pay, they'll go, and they'll, they'll stay the night in this room full of dolls. <laughs> they can if they want to, um, but they have free roam when they come through. Right. But... Um, the fear cage comes from there being a lot of electromagnetic field, a big electromagnetic field there. And it's, it's man-made. It's not a spirit-made EMF. But it creates what is known as a fear cage. <clears throat> and EMF has a tendency to 
cause a lot of side effects, especially to people who are sensitive to it or if you're around a particularly high level of EMF. It's been studied and document by, documented by the power company for years, of course, by the larger number, larger scales, though. But it can cause headaches, hallucinations, um, skin irritation, um, it, it, nausea, headaches, all those fun things. And in that room, we do have some spirits. And for the longest time, we didn't think we had anything in there. We didn't think anybody was haunting that room because we could never get any readings of multiple kinds in there and nobody ever said anything until we started talking with a couple spirits one of them is a man and the other is a little boy and they're always seen together now the fact that you've created this emf uh could not perhaps because you mentioned one of the side effects is um you know, kind of an ill feeling and also hallucination. Right. So how do you know how, I mean, why would you, why would you create an artificial sort of atmosphere or an EMF? Well, we didn't create it. It's just that there is a power line, a main power source ah, for the hospital running through the flooring of that room. Okay, all right. But, so we were able to find that in our research because we didn't want to have false EMF. Gotcha. We wanted to know where it was coming from. All right. Um, we do take it very seriously. You know, we have amazing spirits there that we just adore but since we were able to find that like i said we weren't sure if there was anything in the in that area until we saw the little boy and the man peeking out of the doorway right right. and we weren't even in the room so that's how we were like oh you have been hiding in there (laughs) (laughs) have you have you caught anything on uh, on a security camera we have caught things on security cameras before um Usually we just review the stuff during ghost tours because we have several CCTV cameras in the building and to monitor all 40-some-odd video 24-7 would be very, very hard for anybody. Sure, of course, of course. So we don't review all of that, but we have caught quite a few things on our video cameras. We've caught a spirit named Robert, and he will walk across the hall. You can watch his shadow. And it's very, very clear. You can see his shoulders, his head, his arms. You can watch them move side to side as he walks. You can watch his leg part, legs part as he takes steps. And we've caught a few things like that on many occasions, and not just Robert. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, and very quickly, I've just got less than a minute here, but tell me about the Chapel of the Damned. Oh, my goodness, the Chapel of the Damned. That's where a couple of our spirits, the children, like to hang out, um, Jessica and Christian. Jessica is very, very vocal, and she will always, always play with you. She is very, very good at manipulating objects and will oftentimes roll flashlights or toys off of the conference room table that we have in there during the off-season. All right. Cammy, uh, let's make it a date. We'll have you back on, maybe along with uh, Richard, and we'll, we'll play some EVPs from uh, Asylum 49. Thank you so much. I enjoyed our conversation tonight. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. My pleasure. The Haunting of Asylum 49. Richard Estep and uh, owner of Asylum 49, Cammy 
Anderson. Thank you to Ian. Thanks, Albert. Back next week with a brand new program, including David Rothschild. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.